I don't know how many of you are active on Facebook, but it's seldom that a Facebook post will set off an international debate. But on December 10th, 2015, that's exactly what happened. And the post was from a tenured professor at Billy Graham's alma mater, Wheaton College, and it was an interesting uh, announcement that was made. Uh, Dr. Laricia Hawkins announced that she would be wearing a hijab for Lent, and she explained it this way. She said, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Now, Dr. Hawkins was initially placed on administrative leave. As the, the, uh, the seminary and the university needed to figure out, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we respond to this? Within the month, uh, an agreement had been reached whereby uh, Dr. Hawkins uh, submitted her resignation and the, the, in the university's mind, there, the, the issue had been resolved. But as you followed, uh, if you followed the story uh, in the months following that, there was a debate around the world. Different people trying to make sense of and grapple with the, the statements that had been made. But it was a very, in one sense, unsatisfying debate because there was so little to get your hands on. The, the statements that were made were, were vague and it left so many unanswered questions. She said, for instance, that Muslims and Christians are people of the book, but she didn't specify which book we're both part of. There are very few Muslims that would claim to be people of the New Testament. Very few Christians that would claim to be people of the Quran. So what, what does it mean to say that we're both people of the book? Does it just mean that, that our faith and, and, and beliefs are written in a holy book? Is that what we have in common? And she said that we both uh, worship the same God, but her words were interpreted by some as just meaning we both worship a being called God, but there wasn't any explanation as to what it is that we believe about this being that we call God. And, and so the question still remained, could it be that our beliefs are in fact so different about this being that we call God that we're actually using the same title and the same label, but talking about two very different things? Or, or is it the fact that we are, in fact, using the same label because we are talking about the same thing? That, that, it, there was kind of this circular debate that went around with both sides not really understanding or connecting with each other because there just wasn't enough meaning in the statements to latch onto. I, I think when I hear people say that we all worship the same God, Included in that statement is an assumption that the specifics about what we understand about the nature and identity of God really doesn't matter that much. What's really important is that we love our neighbor and we are kind and gracious to one another. The understanding is that that's what any religion is really all about and the details about God are really kind of secondary and irrelevant. The problem is that the Bible says the exact opposite of that. In fact, the Bible says it's what someone believes about the, the character and nature and identity of God in the particulars will actually 
determine that person's, that person's eternal destiny. That it is that central, that crucial. Today's passage is, in my mind, incredibly relevant because it speaks into what can be in our world, in our, in our day, uh, a time of confusion and uh, vague statements that can create fuzziness and misunderstanding with people, and it speaks with clarity. I think it gives better questions, and we're going to look at three, what I think are better questions than whether we worship a being that we call God and whether our beliefs are written down in a book. It gives three questions that give greater clarity and understanding who is this God that we worship and how do we understand him. If you have your Bibles, I will encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 8. I'm going to read from verses 48 down to verse 59. If you want to use your pew Bibles uh, in the rack in front of you, we're on page 841. John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying, You're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glory myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he's our God but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. Now, next time you hear someone say, we all worship the same God, you may want to drill down and ask some clarifying questions. You may want to ask, for instance, oh, uh, do you worship the God who offers salvation through faith in Jesus alone? Because... uh, the Bible seems to be more concerned about this question than whether they, believe, whether they worship a being that they call God. That, that, that question seems to be of very little significance in the scriptures, whereas this question, whether a person worships uh, the God who offers salvation through faith in Jesus alone, becomes one that is critical, one that in fact determines a person's destiny. We're going to come back and look at the verses that preceded it, but I want to start in verse 51, because there Jesus makes what will be the the critical invitation or uh, promise of this passage. There he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
He, he starts with those words, truly, truly, which sound a little unfa- awkward and, and stiff and wooden to us. But he says those, literally it's amen, amen. He want, says those when he wants you to, to say something that he knows is going to kind of blow your mind. When he's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you better sit down because this will make you see life and the world in a totally different way. This is important. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In the Bible, anytime you see death, you should always think back to when the first word death appears in the Bible. The first time you hear the word death is in the garden, where, Jesus, where, where God says to Adam and Eve, if you, if you eat from the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Death in the garden, as it's introduced to us as a concept, death is a penalty for crossing that line that man and woman were never intended to cross. It is a penalty for reaching out and taking that thing that God had forbidden. It includes physical death, but it's not just physical death. The death in the garden, as it's introduced to us, it begins with a with Adam and Eve dying spiritually. They died spiritually in the sense that the love that they had felt for God is now replaced with fear. They died emotionally as the the freedom and confidence that they felt in themselves and before God was replaced now with shame. They seek to cover themselves and sow fig leaves. They also die relationally as the harmony that they had enjoyed, the unity that was there in their relationship with one another is now replaced with blame and accusation. But not only that, as uh, this death sentence hangs over them, they are blocked access to the tree of life. They're banished from the garden. And, And so it is that humanity start, as it begins in the garden, it is with this sentence of death hanging over Humanity. And, and, and so when, whenever we see the word death in Scripture, we, we, we think of it in all of those, those ways, that, that fullness of, of meaning. And here, Jesus seems to be promising a pardon from this death. He seems to be offering freedom from this death penalty. And he says it comes by keeping his word. Jesus said something similar to someone who was grieving the pain of someone's death. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he adds, do you believe this? Jesus is clarifying here that the pardon from death that he's offering isn't just a sense that people aren't going to physically die. It is that he is offering life after death. It's an invitation to heaven, an invitation to eternal life. Now, life or death, life after death is not, not unique. Many religions talk about it. What is unique is the means by which someone will enjoy this life after death, this eternal life that Jesus offers. Because here the promise of life after death is given to whoever believes in him. In fact, Jesus repeats this word believe three times in this passage as if 
Somebody might, if he just said it once, they would say, yeah, but surely he's talking about believing and like doing lots of good work. Surely that's kind of part of the equation. Sure, maybe, maybe the believing is not all that essential afterwards. And so Jesus gives you believe, believe, believe in order to, to bring this home. First he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, just to be certain, do you believe this? Is, is, is this your commitment? Is this where you have staked your claim? I don't know any other religion in the world that offers pardon from death and eternal life through faith in Jesus alone. I, 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 I've done a little bit of, of, of study. I've, I've been exposed to a number of different faiths, but I don't know anyone that, that, uh, that, that offers that outside of the Bible. In fact, typically the, the answer is, is very different, and it typically goes this way. If someone is good enough and religious enough and sincere enough and faithful enough, then maybe they will do enough to undo the bad that they have done, and they will receive heaven, the promise of eternal life. That's typically what other religions teach, but Jesus isn't teaching that. He's saying something completely different than that. Only the Bible declares that our good works can't undo our bad works. And so we need a Savior who will pardon us through faith. Which God do you worship? What does your book say? Do you worship the God who offers salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe if you look at these verses and others that we could turn to, maybe you would say, I get that. I get that that's the method that God saves people through the Bible. But maybe God has different methods depending on who the person is and what their background is. So maybe this is the way that people, that Christians are given eternal life, but maybe there's a different method for the Jews and a different one for the Buddhists and a different one for the Muslims and a different one for atheists and moralists and, and, and maybe God has all of these different methods. It would be a very, it's a very attractive solution. It would solve a lot of, of differences, right? Except the Bible says the opposite of that. Jesus said the opposite of that. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You, it's important to note that Jesus didn't teach people about the way. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And as you read the first half of this verse, it sounds like he's suggesting that the pardon for sin's death penalty and the eternal life he's offering comes through faith in him. And that it can only come through him. But then as you get to the second half of the verse, it's almost like Jesus is anticipating, if I just tell them that I am the way and the truth and the life, maybe some people are hundreds of years later are going to kind of confuse this and get fuzzy on this and start to think, yeah, but maybe, maybe you're the way and kind of like the big way, but maybe there's other ways. And so Jesus anticipates that and clarifies it. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. According to Jesus, there is no other way. 
Eternal life comes through faith in Jesus, Jesus alone. Access to the Father comes through faith in Jesus alone. Is that the God you worship? Is that what your book says? Do you worship the God who offers salvation through faith in Jesus alone? So far we've said that although it's, it's popular to say that we all worship the same God, it's not a very meaningful statement because it really doesn't get to the heart or center of what someone actually believes. And, and saying that we worship the same God, if, if all that we're really saying is that we, we, all, we, we all worship some, some higher being that we call God, but, but uh, the, the details and, and the specifics of, of how we understand that God are in fact profoundly different, then that's not a very helpful statement. And the Bible says that what we believe about God's nature and identity is, in fact, crucial. When someone says we all worship the same God, I said we, it might be helpful to ask whether, we, whether the person worships the, the God who offers salvation through faith in Christ alone. We also might want to ask whether they worship the God who testifies that Jesus is more than a prophet. It, it's an important question to ask, and the text, in fact, I believe, asks the question because some people's book actually says that Jesus is just a prophet. So uh, if Jesus in, in the scriptures and the, the Bible teaches something far different than that and that Jesus is something far more than that, then that would be a, a big distinction. Do you worship the God who testifies that Jesus is more than a prophet? This still happens today. Um, you, I don't need to tell you this, perhaps. But when Jesus made the claims that he made, when he said the things that he said, when he offered the off invitations that he offered, some people thought he was completely nuts, co totally crazy. Uh, in verse 48, it says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus tries to explain himself. He makes that offer of eternal life that we see in verse 51. And in response, they say in verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Like we thought you were crazy, but now that you've clarified yourself, we're convinced this is all of Satan. That the, the devil's gotten into you. You're nuts. You're crazy. Some, I don't know what, what it is, but you are a dangerous individual. When they call him a Samaritan, it's a religious insult. The Samaritans were the, per the people in the northern tribes that when Israel, the northern tribes of Israel were conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians, most of the tribes were carried off, but some of the, the Jews remained. And they ended up uh, having an influx of people from all of these foreign nations that came. People to displace the people that had been carried off to Assyria. And they intermarried and shared their religion and kind of mixed all their faiths up together so that by the time you get to the first century, the people living in the north, the Samaritans, their version of, uh, of, of the faith of, of uh, Judaism was, was very different from the southern tribes. And the claim is, so when you called someone a Samaritan in Jerusalem, what you were saying was, you're a religious heretic. Like, you've got your understanding of faith all mixed up. Obviously, when you 
said someone, you has a demon that was even more problematic. You were saying something even worse about that person and what they believed. And these are some, these are some tough words. These are some, some huge insults they're hurling at Jesus. I actually respect their position, though. I actually respect what they're saying here because it at least shows that they have taken Jesus' claim seriously. At least they've heard him. Because what people typically do in our day is they don't say that. It's not very common for people today who, uh, well, it's not very common today for people to call Jesus demon-possessed or to call him a religious heretic. What they typically do today instead is to say, Jesus was a really nice guy. He was a swell religious teacher and a fine moral example. But that's not an option. If someone makes the claims that Jesus made, you can't just say, wow, what a swell guy that is. Either he is God or he, and is worthy of our worship or he is dangerous, he is deranged, he is demon-possessed and is to be avoided. At least Jesus' hearers understood what was at stake. And, and today we often miss that. Today we take Jesus' claims far more, far more in, in a way that will walk away, walk, walk around uh, the truth and the, the size of the claims that he was making. At U2 frontman Bono, I think, has this right. He said this, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who is Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying, a great thinker or a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. He continues, forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I've never heard the word nutter before. I assume it's an Irish thing. But you, you get the idea, right? He's, he's either a nutter or, or he's the son of God. He gets that the claims that Jesus is making are that grand. They're that profound. And, and if all that you had were the words that we read in this passage, I, I, I wouldn't fault you for saying, you know what, Paul, that's, it, it's too much for me. That claim, I, I just don't, I don't have enough data to really, to really make, a, make a, a confirmation on a claim that that's big. And I, I would respect that. But according to the Bible, God the Father has gone to great lengths to convince us, to give us evidence and to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he is. Watch in verse 50 what Jesus says. He says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's saying, I'm not trying to persuade you myself. I'm not going to give you my arguments and try and... I'm not going to do that because... The Father has been testifying to exactly who I am. And he's the judge. It's his testimony and his opinion that really matters. Then in verse 44, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, 
He is our God. Jesus says, don't take my word for it. I'm not going to to, to try and, and win you over by my arguments. My father, the one that you worship as God, has been trying to convince you and has been giving you evidence to persuade you. You just need to listen to him. Do you know what he's talking about here? Do you know the, how, the, how the father is, has been trying to glorify the son? He's talking about a number of things, I, I think. First of all, he's talking about the, the many, many prophecies of the coming Messiah throughout the Old Testament. From beginning to end, there is this, there is this hope of a coming Messiah that God would visit his people, that God would rescue them, that God would save them. And all of those prophecies in the particulars line up with this person called Jesus. But then there's the miracles of his birth. There are the works that Jesus performed, healing the blind, the disabled, and the sick. And you ask, you read these accounts of eyewitnesses and you think, where did this power come from? Who, who does this? Would Satan give someone that power? Would Satan do so much good? He raised at least a few people from the dead. And he lived a life of innocent purity that this world has never known. Would the devil give power to live that kind of life? Would, would Satan inspire that kind of purity and faithfulness? At his baptism, there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And after his death on the cross, Jesus was raised to life. It was the father's final testimony that this one is the one that was promised. This one is the beloved son. And Jesus rose from the dead and appeared not only to his disciples, but to a crowd of 500 people at a time. The father trying to persuade us trying to convince us, pleading with us, with evidence held out and invitation made. Has he persuaded you? Have you believed the evidence that he's given? Because the God of the Bible wants you to understand who Jesus is. He's taken pains to convince you. Do you worship the God who testifies that Jesus is more than a prophet? Or do you worship some other God? Now, we've looked at a couple questions that, that are more meaningful and give more meat and more specifics than just saying, hey, do you worship a being that you call God? Or are your beliefs written about in a, an old book? But the final, final question that this passage gives is this. Do you worship Jesus as the divine I am? Do you understand him to be the eternal son of God who is worthy of worship? Or do you look on him as something less than that? Do you worship Jesus as the divine I am? Now let me explain what I mean. First, let's look back at that promise Jesus made in verse 51. There he said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We need to pause and say this is unlike any other prophet we've seen, at least in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets always said, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, 
if anyone hears my word. Prophets keep pointing to God. Jesus kept pointing to himself. But there's more going on here. In verse 56, Jesus spoke about the most important figure in Jewish religious history. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. We saw this, if you were with us earlier this year when we went through the life of Abraham from Genesis, we saw that Abraham had been given this incredible promise that God would bless him and that through him and through his offspring, his seed, God would bring blessing to the nations. Blessings to the end of the earth. And we come to that and we see, we see that promise, but we saw at that time that Abraham understood that that offspring through whom God would bring blessing to the nations was the, the, the offspring that had been promised in Genesis 3.15. That one who would come as a serpent crusher. That one who would come who would bring freedom from this penalty of death that was over humanity. That would bring a salvation. That would bring life. Abraham had a clear hope in that coming promise. And Jesus said, that hope that brought Abraham joy was all pointing to me. It was all about my day. It was all about what I have come to accomplish. And here I am, you're claiming that you, you think the world of Abraham, that he's your father, that he's the one that you look to, and yet he looked forward to my day, and when I've arrived, you've closed the door. You've rejected me. But there's actually more going on than that. Jesus claims to be God. In verse 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And you'll remember what we said about that word, that phrase, truly, truly. It's, it's Jesus trying to convince you, slow down, take this in. This is super important. Underline it. Get this message. Before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to have existed before, from before the time of Abraham. At this point, Abraham was already 2,000 years in history from Jesus' point. Now it would be 4,000 years, 4, years from, from our perspective. Jesus is at least saying, I'm more than 2,000 years old. But he's saying more than that. If Jesus hadn't said truly, truly, you might have gotten the impression that he got his... He got his grammar a little bit mixed up. He was, kind of on, he was kind of working off the cuff here and was just kind of making some statements and kind of making things up as he went along. But those words truly, truly key you into the idea, no, no, Jesus is saying something very deliberate, very intentional, and very important. And he wants us to take his words seriously. So he probably hasn't made a grammar mistake. Normally, if someone were going to just say, hey, I'm really, really old. I've been around here for like 2,000 years. You'd expect him to say before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't say that. He says before Abraham was, I am. It's like he's claiming to exist outside of time in some way. It's a claim to be eternal. It's a claim to be to be somehow so outside of time that the past tense doesn't relate to him. It's, an, it's a, a claim to be the eternal son of God. 
But it's actually even more than that. Because this, this phrase, I am, is in fact a name of God that's lifted right from Exodus 3.14. You'll remember when God appeared to Abraham, uh, God ap- appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he, he reveals himself to him and says to, to Moses, I am going to use you to bring victory and, and rescue for my people. I'm going to save people out of Egypt, and I'm going to use you to do it. So go and tell them this message. And Moses is like, um, I'm sorry, but if I go to the people of Israel right now, and if I announce to them that God has chosen me to bring salvation and, and freedom from, from the Egyptians, and, I, and, and all I've got to go on is that I heard some voice, a voice out of a burning bush, they're going to think I'm totally crazy. There's no way they're going to believe it. They're going to say, did you not even catch this God's name? Like, did you not even get any more specific than that? And so Moses stops God and says, like, enjoy the plan. Sounds really good. But I think at least you got to give me your name. Like, tell me what I can say to the people when they ask, so who is this God who's told you? And look at the response in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Well, how do you like that for a name? Uh, like, give me something more to go on. I am has sent me to you? And, and it's as if to say, tell them that the, the God who has sent you is, is not just some, some God that exists. It's a, it's a God who, who gives life, who's a source of life. Who, who has existence within himself and is not dependent on anything else. That name, I am, and if, will, will become, as you read on in the scriptures, the most commonly used name for God. It's, it's that name, Yahweh, that shows up in most of your English translation as Lord in all capitals. This is where it comes from. And the Jews had heard this story and they knew that name so well. They've been trained in it from birth. And Jesus comes along and says, that's me. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, maybe some of you have heard that and maybe you think, boy, Paul, you kind of went into the Old Testament and you're talking about like names. It's, that kind of got a little complicated for me. And maybe you're just confused. Maybe Jesus wasn't really making a claim to be God. Maybe, maybe you just kind of got yourself mixed up. Maybe there's some other way of understanding this. And, and, and I understand if that's what you're thinking, the best thing to do, actually, when, when you're looking at Scripture, you look at their context and, and the clearest way to understand whether you're understanding it the way the passage is intended to be understood is look at how the people that heard it understood it, right? And, and as you look at how the people that uh, uh, heard this, you read verse 59, and that's where Jesus' detractors, they've heard Jesus claim to be I am, and what do they do? They immediately reach for the biggest rock they can find because they want to knock him out. They want to kill him because he is claiming to be God. They recognize that Jesus isn't just kind of making some neat allusions to some Old Testament verses. No, no. What he is saying, if it's true, it requires our our faith and our worship. But if it's not, 
He deserves to be shut down. He deserves to be stoned. And so we understand Jesus' claim to divinity. And the people here rejected it. I, I want you to also notice that Jesus, when they, when they reject him, and they, 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 they reject his claim to be the Son of God, the divine I am, he doesn't say to them, but you know what, guys? Let's not get all worked up about this theology stuff. It's not really all that important. As long as you love your neighbor, hey, we all worship the same God. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say, hey, we're all people of the book. It's just, you know, we got a little, this little details about, you know, my divinity and who I am. That's not something to get, just love your neighbor. He doesn't say that. In fact, what happens is that the glory of the Lord has come to his temple. God has visited his people. And as he comes, they say, we don't want anything to do with this. And he doesn't say, well, as long as you get the love your neighbor part right, it's probably going to be fine. No, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. God leaves. The Savior who had come to bring life departs from the temple and the offer is rejected. Saying that we all worship a being that we call God doesn't really say anything. It's like three people claiming to eat food that they call wholesome, right? One of those, per, one of those people is, is on this strict diet of like kale and tofu, and another person's like eating steak for breakfast, and the third person, they're just eating cheesies all day long. You're like, it's for them to call the all of what they're eating wholesome, it really doesn't, it's not a meaningful statement. And I'm not, I'm not referring to various religions as steak and cheeses, and it's not like a, a parable or a deep illusion that way. But all I'm saying is, what we call some, something ultimately doesn't matter. What does matter is the specifics and the details. Because if we use the same, same label to refer to something that is profoundly different, then our use of that label is really not meaningful anymore. Do you worship Jesus as the divine I am? Or do you see him as something less than that? Do you worship the God who testifies that Jesus is more than a prophet? Or is he just a, a fine example, good teacher? Do you worship the God who offers salvation through faith in Jesus alone? Because it is this, according to the scriptures, according to Jesus, it is this that determines a person's eternal destiny. According to Jesus, it's not just about trying your best. It's not just about being sincere. It comes down to the fact that we are without Jesus, undone. Our good, all the good that we could possibly do doesn't, out, doesn't undo the bad that we have already done. And so we desperately need a savior. We need someone who will rescue us. We need someone who will offer us a gracious pardon. And Jesus comes offering that pardon to you and to me. He offers us life where there would be death. And he invites us to come. Many people, when he made that 
invitation said, I don't think I want any part of this. And the glory of the Lord leaves, leaves the temple. But for you today, there's an opportunity for each of us to lay hold of this God who offers us rescue, who offers to save us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am always amazed as I look at the scripture how relevantly a a book that is now 2,000 years old speaks with such clarity into the confusion and the misunderstandings of our day. I thank you that your word is living and powerful and active. I pray that you'd help us to trust your word. I pray that you'd give us the humility to examine our faith. I pray for anyone here this morning who's come to realize, perhaps for the first time, that maybe they don't worship the God of the Bible. Maybe they don't worship God as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture. Would you guide them into your truth? Would you lead them to new life in Jesus Christ? And I pray for all of us, Father, that you'd help us to give Jesus the place in our life that he deserves. We thank you for the salvation that he offers. We thank you for the great I am. We pray in his mighty name. In Jesus' name, amen.